You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's Bible reading comes in two parts. We're reading 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 7, as well as 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. Chapter 8, verses 1 to 7. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, has had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. For their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lizzie. It's great to be with you tonight. If you haven't met me before, my name's Luke and I'm one of the pastors here and we're continuing on through our 2 Corinthians series. Uh, In my early 20s, I was part of a university church at St Jude's just up the road in Carlton and I just loved it there. I was thriving in my faith and I I was surrounded by a whole bunch of great uh, young people who were thriving in their faith. It was just this really beautiful community that we had and and I'd hate to miss any service. I remember one day uh, I was looking like I was going to miss a service. I think I'd been away somewhere over the weekend, but I wanted to make sure that I at least got a little bit of the service. And so I kind of came in just towards the end, just as the sermon was winding down. 
But just as I walked in, the preacher started talking about a guy called John Wesley. Uh, He's a Methodist man from several centuries ago. And this was a sermon on money and the importance of Christians being generous and giving away money because this was something that Wesley was famous for. Uh, He was adamant in his conviction that Christians should give as much as they could, that they should look after their immediate necessities and then beyond that, try to give as much away as possible. He said, do you not know that God entrusted you with this money for, for you to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to help the stranger, the widow, the fatherless, and, and indeed, as far as it will go, to relieve the wants of all mankind? How can you, how dare you defraud the Lord by applying it to any other purpose? And so he was determined to give as much away as he could. In 1744, he wrote, when I die, if I leave behind me 10 pounds, you can bear witness against me that I have lived and died a thief and a robber. And he was true to his word. It's estimated that through his ministry, he raised, he earned something like 30,000 pounds, which is the equivalent today to about 7 million pounds. But when he died, all he left behind were just a few coins that people found in his pockets and in the dresses of the drawers in his room. He'd given the rest of it away. And I think the preacher, as I walked in, told one of those quotes. And I remember thinking, if only I'd waited another five minutes, I wouldn't have had to hear that. You see, we find it really hard hearing sermons about money. We don't want to hear that stuff. In fact, very rarely have I spoken about it here. Uh, City on Hill West is now nine years old and there's probably three, four sermons I've done in all of that time about money. Now, there's actually some good reasons for that. Uh, we've often drawn people to City on a Hill from churches where they were constantly being told about money in quite manipulative ways. Uh, there was a lot of people who came from places where there'd be a giving talk for about 10 minutes every week, a constant giving campaigns, and it's often based on what we call the prosperity gospel, which basically says that if you give towards the church, then God will prosper you. And if you don't do that, then you'll feel guilty. And, and, and if your life goes awry, it's because you're not giving. Uh, we didn't want people to feel like that. It was not true. And so from very early on, we decided that we would hardly ever talk about money. Uh, We wanted to give people space to just come to church and to know that the gospel was free and we would just trust that God would work in their hearts to give at the time was right. Now, there's probably something good in that, but I don't know that it was always the right approach. You see, while it might be uh, noble not to talk about money too much, it can also be a little bit timid. As I was saying last week, there's some things that are really hard for a preacher to preach on, and money is one of those things. It's very awkward asking for money. It feels like you're begging somehow. That doesn't, it's not an enjoyable experience. But also money feels incredibly personal, and so to speak about it feels quite invasive. I struggle with it. You struggle with it. We, we, we can all be susceptible to the idol of money and comfort. But that's exactly why we should talk about it sometimes. See, the Bible is a very personal book. It's constantly going after our hearts. And so there's a lot of stuff in the Bible about money and how we should use it. God has always called his people to give to to the community of faith. 
but also to those who are poor and vulnerable around us. In the Old Testament, there was an expectation that the the people of Israel would tithe a tenth of their income towards the ministry of God's people. And that was really just a starting point. When you factor in the festivals and the other thank offerings that they would give, there was probably closer to 25 or 30% of their uh, salary would go to that. There's no set figure given in the New Testament, but there is a very clear expectation that God's people will give. You see, that's partly because uh, we need money to sustain the ministry of God's people, but it's even more, I think, partly because God understands the danger of money in our hearts, in our lives. You see, money can deform us. It can uh, distort our values and make us greedy and cruel to others. 1 Timothy 6, for the love of money, says Paul, is a root of all kinds of evil. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So Paul is actually saying that it can even lead you all the way away from God. It can get between you and God. And of course, we see this in the Gospels. Just think of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. In Mark 10, this devout young man comes up to Jesus and says, what, what do I need to do to be saved? Like, I'm trying to do the right thing. What, what should I do? And Jesus says, sell all your possessions and come, follow me. And we're told that the man goes away sorrowful for he had great possessions, possessions that he doesn't want to give up, even if Jesus is asking him to. And so Jesus warns how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so money is potent. It's powerful. It's dangerous. It can get between us and God. But it's not just dangerous. It can be powerful in a really good way. That's what I want us to think about tonight that actually if we don't worship money but worship God with our money, we can do something glorious with it and see something beautiful. That's what we see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The context for these passages is uh, Paul's efforts to raise money for the Christian church in Judea. Uh, Judea was where Jerusalem was and that, was, of course, was the very first Christian church. In the days after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the church began there and then they had uh, built itself up and then they had gone out. The apostles had sent people out and they'd gone out themselves across the Mediterranean to plant new churches. But now these these original churches were facing some really big challenges. Uh, In the middle of the first century, under the reign of Emperor Claudius, there was a whole bunch of famines. And so there was a lot of people in Jerusalem and and Judea who were, were starving, like they were really struggling to find food. It's likely that some of the Christians were also finding it hard because they were probably facing persecution. It was harder for them to get jobs, to get money, to get food. And so all of these things, they're under really great pressure. They're in a bad way. And so Paul says, right, he's asking all of the other churches to come and support them. He's going around these churches collecting money to support these guys. He calls it in chapter 9, the ministry for the saints. And in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, Paul's previous letter, uh, we know that the church at Corinth was actually very eager to help. They pledged to do this. The problem is they haven't yet followed through on that. And now Paul is kind of following up. Guys, I know you pledged this. But really, it's really a good time to come and through, come through with that, to fulfill that pledge. In fact, it's going to be a little bit awkward if you don't, because I've been bragging to everyone about how great you are, how generous you are. And so it's going to look a bit dumb if you're not. 
see that in chapter 9. But he doesn't just want them to give out of guilt. He says, I want this to be a willing gift, chapter 9, verse 5, because God loves a cheerful giver, verse 7. Really, he's hoping that they will be like the Macedonians. Macedonia was a Roman province in the northern part of Greece. It took in the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica and Berea, all places that Paul had visited and planted churches in during uh, his ministry in Acts. Now, these churches were also suffering greatly. Uh, We're told here in verse 2 that they have a severe test of affliction. Perhaps they too are struggling financially, but even more than that, we know from Paul's letters to some of these churches that they were constantly being persecuted. So they're in a really difficult spot as well. And yet in the midst of all of this, they decide to give. Paul says in verse 2, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They give. In fact, Paul says in verse 3, they gave beyond their means, but more than they could even afford to give, they gave away, to the point where, verse 4, they're begging Paul earnestly for the favour of giving. You you can sense that Paul's actually a little bit embarrassed about this, like, I don't know if you've got the money to give, and they're saying, no, 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 please, let us give you this money. As one writer puts it, they're the ones doing the begging, not Paul. It's quite extraordinary. Extreme poverty and extreme generosity. And so Paul sees these guys as an example for others to follow. Now, at this stage, you might think that Paul is just kind of going to do a guilt trip on them, kind of force this money out of them. But actually, as we read on, this is not just a shakedown passage. He sees them as an example and an inspiration. He points to them and he shows, through them, he shows us that giving can be a beautiful and a joyous thing, that we can truly become cheerful givers who gain as we give. How good would that be? How good would it be to be cheerful givers? That's what I'm praying God will do through this passage for us. And I want to suggest four things, four characteristics of the cheerful giver that we see in this passage. The first one is that cheerful givers are inspired by the gospel. Generosity, Paul argues, is an expression of the gospel which flows out, which springs from our own experience of the gospel. Our experience leads to the expression. See how Paul makes the argument in 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus Christ had all wealth. He was rich. He he had the comfort and the glory of heaven, the, the joy, the worship of the heavenly abode, And yet he gave all of these things up to come to earth. Philippians 2, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. So he he gave up all of that wealth to come into this world. And then beyond that, he went to the cross. He gave up all of the wealth and the comfort and the strength that he had to die for our sins on the cross. Jesus made himself poor so that he could give his riches to us. 
We're told that the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. That's because he was making a home for us in heaven. Jesus accepted the scorn and the abuse of men so that we could have the honour of being called his children. Jesus, our Saviour, the perfect one, took on our sin so that he could make us wealthy with his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And if you experience this, if you truly grasp the generosity and the grace of God, if you really recognise all that he has given you, then that will transform you, that will change you. You'll become a generous person because of his generosity. When you experience this, you find yourself compelled, desiring to express it. That's what happened with the Macedonians. They've experienced the generosity of God and so now they show it to other people. As R. Kent Hughes puts it, the riches of God's grace have been poured out on them and so they in turn poured out what they had on others. They're, they're, they're desperate to, to replicate the character and the, the, the goodness of God. They want to show that to other people. But note how this begins, where the starting point is. 8 verse verse 5, he says of the Macedonians, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That's the key point. For us to give ourselves to others, we first have to give ourselves to God himself. You see, you can give, but you might not be generous. Giving and generosity is not just about the amount, but it's about the heart that's inside. So you can give in the wrong way for the wrong reasons, for the, with the wrong motivations. You can give out of guilt to try to make up for your failings, to sort of uh, buy back God's favour perhaps. You can give begrudgingly just because you have to. You know, someone's at the lights rattling the tin. You feel like you'll look bad if you don't put something in. You can give bitterly even. Perhaps you give towards someone and, you, and you, you feel like they shouldn't need this, that they should be able to sort themselves out. Or you can give boastfully, hoping to get some glory from it. I mean, it's wonderful that we have the Good Friday appeal and we raise their money for the children's hospital, but how many people give so that they can see their name along the bottom of the screen on that day? So this is giving, but it's not necessarily generosity. In fact, it can actually be spiritually dangerous. Uh, Kent Hughes says that we can imagine that we start to just give our material goods, our substance, that God will be impressed and satisfied with that. We can kind of put that between ourselves and God and not actually turn to Christ. So he says it won't do any good to give our possessions to God unless we have given ourselves. If you haven't given your life to Christ, he says, don't bother giving your money. But if you do give yourself to God, then you'll find the resources inside to give yourself to others. It changes our whole perception, our our mindset. As As Hughes puts it, when we know that our lives are not our own, neither will we think that our possessions are our own. It's easy to surrender part when we've already given the whole. When we give ourselves, then we can give our stuff. So have we given ourselves to God? 
Have we felt our need and given that to God? And then have we taken the riches of his forgiveness? Have we received his grace? Have we discovered the resources that we need to find life with him? One of the most profound examples of this, I think, is Zacchaeus. Uh, You might remember him. He's a little bloke that Jesus meets in uh, Luke chapter 19. He's a tax collector. So he would have been a hated person. He was collecting taxes. uh, He's a Jewish man collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman overlords. And and we also know that he was uh, also uh, skimming money off the top of that because that's what they would tend to do. They would try to take that money for themselves. And so this man, though, he's heard about Jesus and he wants to hear more. He wants to go and see him. But, of course, because he's so short, he has to go up this tree. And when he's up the tree, Jesus says, I can see you, Zacchaeus. I want you to come home with me tonight. Today I want you to to take me home and I'm going to have a meal with you. Well, they have this meal and and it must be a pretty spectacular meal because somewhere between the main course and dessert, uh, he is transformed. He says, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Something extraordinary has happened within this man. I mean, here is a bloke who was willing to sacrifice uh, his friendships, his reputation to get money. That's what he was all about. He idolised money. But now he's totally flipped. He wants to give his money away. And Jesus, rejoicing, explains what's happened. Today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus has tasted the generosity of God and that has made him a generous, a generous person. So generosity is an expression of the gospel that flows out of our experience of the gospel. And then secondly, cheerful givers know the riches of the family of God. As I mentioned before, Paul was trying to raise money for all the other churches in Jerusalem. He was doing this for practical reasons, but I think also for spiritual reasons. He he understands that if they give, they'll feel a greater part of the family of God. This begins at a quite basic level. Uh, If you were to see your own blood brother or your own blood sister on the side of the street and they were in need, you would stop and help them out, wouldn't you? Well, Paul says it's the same with our spiritual family. Oh, 1 John 3, by this we know, love, that Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, it closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He's saying, just as you would care for your blood sister, your blood brother, your sibling, surely we should care the same for our spiritual brothers and sisters. If we see them in need, we can't just walk past that. True love means that we will care for them. We're part of the same family. Paul says here, prove that your love is genuine. That's why we give, because we're connected. And, of course, we would want them to do the same for us. That's the point that Paul makes in chapter 9, verse 13. He says, look, I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. So you're saying right now they need something, but in the future you might need something. And when when you need it, then we'll ask them to provide it. 
as Gary Miller explains, when I need help, you help me. When you need help, I help you. Nobody's keeping score, but there's this natural ebb and flow as we live together in dependence without either shame, which would stop us asking for help, or greed, which would stop us giving it. When I have more than enough, I gladly help you and you do the same back. It's because we're part of the family of God together. We give to each other because we're all part of this and that as we give, we feel that. And also as we receive, we feel that. So that's what I love about the situation here in Corinth. You see, the, the church of Jerusalem was like the original church. They were the, the OG, as the young people say. Uh, they were the first church of God. And so they've planted all these other churches and it would be easy for them to feel a little bit superior. We're more mature, we're more experienced, we've got the runs on the board, and to sort of look down their noses at these other churches. But now in this situation, that's all flipped up. They need help. Beggars can't be choosers. And then as they experience this help from the other churches, they realise that God is at work all over the place. They can see the power of God at work in the lives of other people. And we're told in verse 14 that this means that they end up praying and they're praising God. So it's not just the giver who feels a part of the family of God, it's the receiver. We all together feel our place, come to know the reality of our identity as a family of God. We find joy in our union. And thirdly, cheerful givers discover their place in God's work. In 3 John verse 8, the Apostle John urges his readers to support their brothers who are on mission that they may be fellow workers for the truth. Fellow workers for the truth. And in saying that, he gives us this wonderful picture of how ministry works, what it can involve. See, when we give, we are actually working. We become fellow workers for the truth. We may not be doing the ministry personally, individually, but if we are giving, we are making it possible for that ministry to happen, and so we are fellow workers. Like, like do you realise that? If, if you give towards this church, you are a fellow worker. If you give towards a missionary overseas or you give towards compassion, whatever it is, you are a fellow worker in that. You see, we need Christians in secular workplaces. We need them in schools, in hospitals, in banking institutions, in cafes. We need Christians all over the place. And we need you to be on mission wherever you are. But we also need people to be devoted full-time to the work of ministry, to be pastors, to write sermons, to shepherd the flock, to lead worship, to train and equip saints for the work of ministry. We need people to be devoted to that. And your giving makes that possible. You might not be doing it yourself, but you're making it possible. So I want to thank you. I want to thank you for being a fellow worker with us. You are making it possible for us to do the work that God has called us to do. You are making it possible 
to expand God's work here too. So I'm really grateful for that. But I also want to ask and suggest that perhaps we could even do more. See, I think this is an area that we could all grow in. It's an area that I could grow in. I know that. I, I know there's much more that I could give. So much easier for me to buy another book than to give that money to the work of God. And I suspect I'm not the only one who's like that. I get a little summary every month of our financial position as a church. It tells me how much money has been given, how many givers there have been, what the average gift is. I don't have the exact details. I don't know who gives what. I don't want to know. But I do have this good general idea. And basically every month we have around $36,000 that comes in and we have 90 givers who give that. Now, 90 givers might include a whole bunch of families. So there's probably 150 people represented in that. And so uh, generally people are giving about $400 a month, which is wonderful. Over a year, that adds up to about $460,000. That's our budget. And that goes to all kinds of different things. It goes to our venue here. Uh, we spend just over $2,000 a month uh, on this place. It goes to our ministries. We have a budget of around $25,000 to go to things like uh, city kids materials or leadership development, uh, food at events and things like that. Uh, we have another $100,000 that goes to the larger City on a Hill movement. We're a movement of nine churches. Uh, that goes to things like supporting and mentoring our leaders. It goes to some of the, the, the movement-wide ministries that I'm a part of. So, for instance, when I've travelled up to Brisbane a lot last year to help supervise them and support them, that was money that was uh, funded by the central team. We have a team of people who do things like compliance and HR, operational support and so on. We have a couple of people here in our church like Andrew Godfrey and Elise Supek who've been employed in this central team to help things work right across this movement of churches. And then the biggest whack of all of our giving goes towards staffing. Can anyone smell something dodgy here? Yeah, maybe we're going to need some even more money to pay for a new a new building. We've got a firefighter out there, Johnny Rock. Do you know what's going on here? Can we turn everything off maybe? Very good. What could go wrong? <laughs> All right, well, I'll continue on. So we have uh, our, our staffing, for instance, we have about $250,000 in uh, that money. Two of us, Coy and myself, work full-time, and then we have Michelle, Carmen and Dan who work part-time. So I'm incredibly thankful for the money that we have and the things that we can do with that money. But I wonder if we could do even more because we could do more if we had more. Michelle's employed two and a half days a week but often works more than four. Uh, Carmen's employed a day a week but does two or three regularly. Dan's employed one day a week but obviously does a whole bunch more than that. And think of all the other things that we could invest in as well. We're seeing our women's ministry really develop beautifully. Imagine we could devote someone to that work full time. How fantastic would that be? We've talked a lot about developing a ministry for, uh, for babies and vulnerable young mums. Imagine bringing someone on to, to lead that ministry. Imagine having someone work as a chaplain at Victoria University or at the hospitals around us. These are wonderful opportunities that we have. 
And then as we develop this place here, think of the new ministries that we could do. Imagine a community garden out the front. Imagine reaching out to the neighbours around us or setting up a mums group. These are the kinds of things that we could do. And when we make these kinds of investments, it has a lasting value, a glorious future. So when we just use our stuff, it's, it's temporary, it's finite. John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men in America, last century, when he died, someone asked, how much money did he leave behind? And the answer was, well, he left all of it. Because that's the reality, isn't it? We can't take our stuff with us. Someone has once said that it's a little bit like when we amass our possessions here, it's a little bit like getting a whole bunch of new furniture for your hotel room. Like, you, what's the point? You're going to leave the hotel room. And so often we can get so fixated on just amassing our stuff here. Imagine, though, if we thought bigger than that. See, when we give towards God's work, it can go on beyond the grave. We can invest in the future, in something that changes eternity for us and for others. That's what God offers us. So cheerful givers experience that, and they also discover more of God's generosity. See, one of the things that can stop us from being more generous is that we're, we're greedy. I get that. But another thing is that we're just anxious. We don't know what's in the future. We think, if I give now, will I have enough for later? Will I have enough when I need it? I mean, just think about now with the interest rates going up. My own mortgage has probably gone up $1,000 over the last few months, and it's, it's hard to keep wanting to give money in that kind of context. But God invites us to trust him in this and to experience his provision. In 8 verse 15, Paul says, It is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is a quote from Exodus 16 where we're told that God provided for his people in the desert, giving them manna from heaven, and they never had too much or too little. Everyone had enough. And so it will be for us, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, God will ensure we have all sufficiency in all things at all times. God will always make sure that we have enough. That's what happened for the Macedonians. Paul told them in Philippians 4, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's what they were told. That's what they believed. And so they gave. And we could believe that too. I was talking to a guy just a few weeks ago who had this experience. He and his wife were looking to put together a home loan, I think, and they had to get as much money as possible. But they felt convicted that they should give some of that money as well. It was a hard thing to do. Like, how do I trust God if I do this now? What if I don't have enough? But they chose to step into that and God provided for them. R. Kent Hughes says, the simple truth is God will give us what we need to give to others. We will always be rich enough to be generous. But it's not just that God will give us what we need. God will, may well give us more than that. 9 verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
This is a simple farming analogy. If you sow a whole bunch of seeds, then you'll get a bigger crop. And so Paul says, if we give more, God will provide more. 9 verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. The more we give, the more God gives to us. Now, I'm hoping that a few of you are shuffling nervously in your seats right now because you might have heard people say this in prosperity gospel churches and you know that that's heresy, right? What's happened to Luke? Is it the fumes? (laughs) No. What we see here is a principle that is often misapplied, but there is something working here. When we give, when we trust God, He gives bountifully, generously to us. And the difference, though, between the prosperity gospel and the the truth that Paul is saying here is in why we seek this giving. Why do we want more? See, the prosperity gospel appeals to our greed, but the true gospel appeals to our generosity. See what Paul says here in verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. He's saying you will get more so that you can give more. Now, if that becomes your motivation, then it's okay to ask for more because you can give even more. We get so that we can give. And if this excites you, if you can see the possibilities of this, then you're on the way to being a cheerful giver. You rejoice because you see what your giving does, what it achieves. Randy Alcorn says it will change eternity for you and for others when we give towards what God loves. That's what we're being called to here. And apparently that's something that the Corinthians uh, discovered as well. Paul urges them here to give to the Christians in Jerusalem. And if you read in Romans 15, it turns out that they did do that. We're told in 15 that they were pleased to do it. They became cheerful givers. So are you a cheerful giver? Am I a cheerful giver? Or even if you're not, do you want to be? And can you see the pathway here? This is what God is offering to us. But as we finish, remember where it begins. It begins with the gospel. If you want to be a cheerful giver, then recognise the gift that God has given you. Do you know the word grace is mentioned about ten times in these verses, culminating in Paul's statement right at the end in chapter 9, verse 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Uh, One writer points out that this is the first time that the word inexpressible appears in the Greek language in written works. And he says it's almost like Paul is trying to find the right word to say to express how wonderful God's grace is. And he ends up, look, I just can't even express it. It's inexpressible. That's how profound God's grace is, how amazing God's generosity is. And if we discover, if we realise that, if we find ourselves unable to express it in words, 
the wonder of his forgiveness, the wonder of adoption and new life, the wonder of his grace, then the only way we can express it is by being generous. And when we do that, we start to express the inexpressible. We make it tangible and real, what is infinite and beyond comprehension. That's what God calls us to. How about we pray? Father God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the example of the Macedonians. We thank you for what we're being called to and the, the possibilities, the opportunities for us to be cheerful givers, work in our hearts to make us generous. May we do this not out of guilt, not out of a desire for glory, not to just kind of make ourselves feel better, but because we are so profoundly moved by the gospel. May we experience your grace so much that we want to express it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.